0: We will be looking at this chapter in its entirety. First Samuel 24. This is God's Word to us this afternoon. Let's give our attention to it. First Samuel 24 reads, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth, and paid homage and david said to saul why do you listen to the words of men who say behold david seeks your harm behold this day your eyes have seen how the lord gave you today into my hand in the cave and some told me to kill you but i spared you i said i will not put my hand out my hand against my lord For he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. And you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you... Have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, Behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word that was proclaimed this morning, for the means of grace that You have provided. And we ask once again that You would attend Your Word this afternoon by Your Spirit. These are wonderful things, and we pray for Your help We pray for Your guidance and Your instruction in how, even, yes, in the Old Testament, that it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, attend to Your Word by Your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So from a very young age, we learn that revenge is a bad thing. In fact, your parents start teaching you fairly early on this fact. Every parent in here has told their child, don't hit your brother and sister after they've done what? The other ones hit are antagonized, and so you don't want to respond by hitting back. Do not seek revenge. Now, if revenge is so bad? Why is our desire for it so instinctual? Why is it so intense? Well, of course, we are sinners, but, but there is more to it than this. You see, revenge assumes that you have been injured, that you have been wronged by another person. And on the ground floor of revenge is a need for justice, for restitution, to make a wrong right. And surely this is an upright desire. And yet, revenge takes the proper desire for justice and it bathes it in hatred, in personal vindictiveness, revenge, twist justice into the perversion of Lamech. I was reading in Genesis this past week, and, and it was just beautiful, because I, 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 sometimes you just miss certain text. Lamech is mentioned in Genesis 4.23, who essentially said, I killed a man for doing what? Do you recall? For slapping me. For slapping me. And this is why revenge is hard to control. Well, David is handed an ideal opportunity for revenge. In fact, what we'll see is that all of his friends are telling him, just do it. You know you want to. And yet, this afternoon, in David's remarkable restraint in our narrative we are given another amazing depiction of Christ's lavish mercy and love upon us. Well, we left off last week with a surprising providence where David barely escaped Saul. For as you know, Saul was closing in quickly, and yet, right before David was apprehended, the hand of the Lord stepped in. And he used of all the Philistines. He used the Philistines to occupy Saul's time and resources so David could escape there at the end. Well, now David's location has been blown and he needs to find a new hiding place. So David and his men hike up to the spring of En Gedi. Now, En Gedi is located on the cliff about 600 feet above the western shore of the Dead Sea. This is a place of, of crags, of, of precipices. To think of the, it in terms of the, of the geography. It would be like the perfect place for mountain goats to go and play, okay? Of course, after Saul has been dealt with with the Philistines, he is once again in hot pursuit. In fact, so much so, the narrator doesn't even give us any indication of who won the battle against the Philistines. The point being is that Saul is zero focused in on killing David. And it doesn't take long for Saul's secret police to locate David once again. It is reported to Saul that David is in the area of Engedi and he is off without delay. Note verse 2 with me once again. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men. Brothers and sisters, Saul this time selected 3,000 men from his special forces units, and they are in hot pursuit for David. The hounds have picked up the scent of the fox, and they are off to the races. Yet while Saul is hiking along the road, nature calls. He needs a potty break. And Saul spots a cave nearby, which is the perfect location when you want a little privacy. Saul tells his men, hey, take ten, while he goes and uses the restroom. Yet, little does Saul know that his bio break is about to turn into a very dangerous situation. You see, ironically, Saul, who can't find David to save his life, picks for himself an outhouse where David is hunkered down. In the depths of the cave, David and his men are crouching in secrecy. You can see all this in verse 3. Look at it with me. It says, And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Okay, there are two things we can assume about Saul's bio break here one, he is alone, his bodyguard more than likely remained outside. And two, Saul is very vulnerable. Quite literally, David has caught Saul with his pants down. Well, if you are David in this situation, this would be like the perfect opportunity. Talking about having the enemy served up to you on a platter. And David's men... David's men see this exactly this way. Note the first part of verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's men are practically giddy with excitement. They essentially say, David... This is it. This is the moment. The Lord said He would give the enemy into your hand. Well, today is that day. Rise and do what your eyes see fit to do. Now, there are some noteworthy things in the men's statement that we should consider very quickly. First, they tell David to do what he thinks is right, but they clearly imply that they want him to kill Saul. There's no doubt about their intentions for bloodshed. But secondly, the men quote a so-called word from the Lord. And yet, we have not heard this divine word before. When and how did the Lord tell David that he would give the enemy into his hand? As readers, we have doubts about the men's quotation. Nevertheless, put yourself now in David's shoes. This is like one of those life, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Think about all the evil that Saul has done towards David up until this point. I mean, he's, he's thrown spears at him. He's tried to pin him up against the wall. Saul has been chasing David around all throughout the wilderness. And Saul has constantly tried to kill David for quite some time now. But now... At this very moment, Saul walks blindly alone into David's cave. I want to remind you of something that I mentioned to you last week at this point. How do we read providence? How do we read providence? And remember, we had a contrast between how Saul read providence and how David read providence. And yet, once again, Saul walks blindly into this cave this is the perfect chance for revenge. Of course, we could just say this. It's the perfect chance for or, excuse me, the perfect opportunity for justice. I mean, the Lord has, has brought my enemy into the cave. And with one swing of the sword, Saul is done with. All David has to do at this point is pull the trigger. And all the suffering that he's been going through, that we have been covering, is over in a flash. Oh, at another point. With one swing of the sword, the throne is his. The throne that he has been promised by the Lord. So how will he read this? I mean, who can resist the desire for justice? For revenge must have been burning within David, and yet David doesn't do this. Note the last part of verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Brothers and sisters, rather than executing Saul, David cuts off a portion of a hem of Saul's robe. And so David spares the life of Saul. Now, this slicing off of a part of Saul's hymn is not insignificant. For back in the day, the hem of your garment was decorative, or we could say it this way, identifying. Think about a Scottish tartan. Your hem was, had an insignia with, of your clan, your honor, and your status was a part of your hymn. You see, Saul would have had a royal hymn. And to cut this off would have been highly symbolic. And it was considered an act of rebellion, of defeat, of replacement. And so David cutting off Saul's hymn declared that he would overthrow Saul and take his place as king. And this is why we see David responding so strongly, listen to me, so strongly with guilt in verse 5. Note with me, verse 5, And afterward David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David's conscience cuts him deeply here. How could he do such a thing? Well, let's look why he feels so guilty. Verse 6, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Listen to this next phrase, the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David feels guilty because of Saul's official status as the Lord's anointed one. Now there are several significant details about David's statement here. First, it reflects a kind of sanctity to the office of Messiah or King. God endowed the office of anointed king or Messiah with a special and a holy status within Israel. And what God has made holy, listen to me, you do not touch. What the Lord has honored, you should never dishonor. Now we got to back up for just a moment. What happened in Nob just a couple chapters prior? Who did, who did Saul kill but the anointed priest of the Lord? Do you see a contrast? And once again, you should never dishonor that which the Lord honors. This sanctity of the office of Messiah, brothers and sisters, is prophetic of our Lord Jesus Christ. The holiness of Christ cast His glory then on all those that foreshadowed Him. Yes, even Saul. Thus, David's respect for the office of Messiah is him honoring Christ from afar. Secondly, David, sparing Saul, demonstrates how the offices of God must be honored, even, listen to me, this is important, even when the man in the office is dishonorable. Surely, Saul's wickedness has stripped him of any personal honor, and we have seen that, we have discussed that, He acted like an evil, corrupt despot. We've gone into detail about this. And yet, because of God's appointment, his office must still be respected. David teaches us here that when it comes to God's ordained authorities, we must respect the office. Even when we don't respect the man. Brothers and sisters, there is an ethical and legal principle revealed in David feeling guilty here. Think about this with me. If there is no legal or lawful way to remove a corrupt ruler, guess what? You can't do it. God alone appointed Saul to the kingship. And God did not provide a provision in the law for the people to remove a wicked king. Now, I'm going to take a moment and hit the pause button, and I want you to look up at me. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. According to Scripture, do we have, as a church, a provision to remove elders? Yes or no? It's Sunday school, so you can help me. Yes. Yes. So the Lord has provided His church a means to remove someone that's in sin, that's in authority in the New Testament, okay? I wanted you guys to see the, the, this. Okay, now let's bring it back into the Old Testament economy, the Old Testament law. God did not provide a provision in the law for people to remove a wicked king. Only the Lord makes kings, and only the Lord can remove a king in Israel. Do you understand the difference? Yes? Everybody tracking? Clear as mud, right? All right. So David cannot take the law into his own hands. All he can do, listen to me, is appeal to the Lord. And then do what? and wait. Appeal to the Lord, and wait. He cannot give into revenge. To do so would be to usurp the prerogative of God alone. And so David will not lift a finger against Saul. And he strongly rebukes his men so that they will follow his example. David in no way will be responsible for striking down the Lord's anointed king. I asked this way early in our series. When we evaluate David, the question you have to ask is, will David be a usurper? And once again we see a clear example is, no, he will not be. He will not do it, and he will not allow any of his men to do it either. Of course, David's self-restraint to not kill Saul is, brothers and sisters, it's truly remarkable. Would it have, have been so easy for him to slay Saul? After all the evil that Saul had dumped onto him. It's, it's a small miracle that David did not kill Saul Let's be honest, Saul did deserve to die after all. Nevertheless, after Saul leaves the cave, David impresses us. For now David calls out to Saul. Saul turns around and sees David kneeling down. And what does David do? And he prostrates himself to honor the king. Now this doesn't seem right to us at first, does it? How can David bow down to a man who just slaughtered the priest of God and wiped out the city of Nob? And yet, once again, it shows us that honoring of authority is very important moral duty. Even, listen to me, and this is important, I want you to think about this, Even when the world makes a mockery of God's offices, we need to respect the office for the sake of the Lord who gave the office. Now, David will speak out in one of the longest speeches that we have from him. And in this speech, basically what we're going to see is David's going to lay out a court case for us. That is... He appeals to the high court of the Lord to judge the guilty and vindicate the upright. And so David first sets forth the false charge that is against him. Look at what he says in verse 9. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? He asked Saul, why do you listen to counsel that, seek, that, that I seek your harm? This is a charge, or the charge against David, that he's a rebellious servant trying to overthrow Saul. Next, David will call Saul as a witness. Look at what he does in verse 10. behold, this day your eyes have seen, he's talking to Saul, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. Saul can see with his own eyes that this charge is not true. Next, David lays out the evidence. He lifts up the hem of Saul's robe. Look here, Saul. I have... Your hymn. When you were going to the bathroom, I could have killed you. In fact, my men were telling me to do so. But no. David instead spared Saul, even though Saul paid David only evil. David did not return evil for evil. So David, David changes the cut hymn. listen to me, a cut hymn being a symbol of rebellion. Into a symbol of innocence. He could have killed Saul, but instead he only trimmed his robe. David now lifts up this hymn and says, in the middle, look at the middle of verse 11, these words There is no wrong or treason in my hand. I have not sinned against you. The hymn in David's hand is a sign there's no treason in his hand. There is no treachery. There is no rebellion. And with the evidence logged, David pleads now to the Lord to judge between him and Saul. David promises that his hand will never be against Saul as the Lord's anointed. And he prays that the Lord will vindicate him over Saul. And my point of all of this is that David once again shows his fortitude in not seeking revenge. Rather, he appeals to the Lord to right the wrongs committed against him. And what does David do? He waits, he does not avenge himself. Rather, he leaves the vengeance up to the Lord. So this is David's case against Saul. And since Saul was called as a witness, now he gets a chance to testify. Now, leading up to this chapter, we haven't seen a lot of good in Saul, but i got to tell you, Saul's response here, at least for this chapter, is quite positive. He recognizes David's voice, and he calls him son. Now, this is significant. I'm going to show you a play. In verse 11, David referred to Saul as what? Did you see it? As father. And now Saul echoes by saying, My son. Note verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. This text should remind us that at one time, there was love between Saul and David. Just like a father and son relationship. And David, David longs for this type of relationship to be rekindled. And David longs for this. And here, at least for this chapter, Saul gives a hearty amen. And Saul begins to weep. Finally, with the word of the Lord being spoken, we can see that He is struck with remorse. He is struck with sorrow for all the evil that He has done. I'm going to take a moment, look up at me. There is a difference between between remorse and repentance. I'm not going to spend any time on this, but I want to at least acknowledge that we see remorse the question that I'm just going to kind of ask you to put a pin in, will David, excuse me, will Saul be repentant? At the moment, he's remorseful. Will he be repentant? We'll come back to that another time. But here, at least for today, some of Saul's humanity, some of his decency returns. For with tears, Saul makes a full and proper profession. In fact, he declares David to be what? The righteous one. In fact, Saul admits that David is innocent and upright and that all the sin and evil is on himself. In other words, Saul doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't blame shift at all. Rather, he does take full responsibility for his sin. Saul even lays out the virtue of David. Note verse 17. He says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Now look at how Saul characterizes this good. He he, he says, if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? The answer is, of course, no. No one does this. If your enemy in war falls in your hand, do you know what you're supposed to do? You kill him. This is normal. This is natural. It's not wrong. Let me give you a modern day example since we we had some football this past week. If a quarterback fumbles the ball and you're on the opposing team, you do not hand it back to him. Okay? Oh, here, you drop this. No, you run it back for a touchdown, you spike it in his face. Everybody's got this. Well, these are the rules of war. But David did the unthinkable. He let Saul go. He spared Saul's life. The point is that Saul testified that David possesses the rarest of all loves. What is the rarest of all loves? You ready? To love your enemy. To love your enemy. Almost everyone loves their family, especially after Thanksgiving, right? People love their neighbor for the most part, but but who loves their enemy? Doesn't this just go against nature and yet... This is what David did. He loved the one who was trying to kill him. And Saul knows it. And the result is that Saul testifies now that this love makes David more righteous. And with David's obedience to the Lord so well demonstrated, Saul can no longer deny the fact that David will be king any longer. Saul has finally come to a place that he can admit to himself that the kingship actually belongs to David. Saul acknowledges that his reign is coming to an end and that David's is just beginning. And out of respect for David's coming reign, Saul's going to plead for a mercy. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. And now behold... I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Here's the appeal. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Here Saul asked David to swear that he will not cut off Saul's descendants, and that David will not exterminate Saul's name from his father's house. This is a huge request. For to have your line cut off in the Old Testament, or to have your name erased, meant to lose your covenant inheritance. Brothers and sisters, this is strongly symbolic for God's ultimate and everlasting curse. It was to be cursed to death. What we have here from Saul is an admission of guilt that he deserves to die. And he pleads to David that he will not cut off his descendants or the, his line. In this request, we can see that Saul looks to David as God's true anointed one. And what does he do? He pleads for mercy. How does David respond How does David respond? Well, he grants it. Note verse 22. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David swore an oath not to cut off Saul's name. David, once again, shows mercy. First, David spares Saul's life, And now he swears to be merciful to Saul's descendants or not to cut off his covenant inheritance. And as we just read with this oath, they both go go their separate ways. The hostility ceases, well, at least for a moment. The chase is called off. Saul goes home and David returns to one of his strongholds. Another chapter, in David's life closes. Brothers and sisters, this chapter closes with an incredible foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. For David spared Saul, not for his own sake, for se, but for the sake of his office. Out of respect for the anointed king, David would not lay a finger On Saul. And in doing so, David provides us with a picture of the true Messiah. You see, David's foresight to honor the office of Messiah moves him to imitate or image the Messiah by loving his enemies and returning good for evil. For like David, Jesus was the anointed one of God, he is the anointed one of God. All honor and sanctity should have been shown to Him. To strike at Christ would have been the ultimate sacrilege. It was to defile all that was holy, all that was pure. It was to profane God's name in the most heinous of ways. Just think about this sin. this Just thinking about this sin made David's heart strike him with guilt. And yet, ironically, the Pharisees, who were the champions of purity, who were the defenders of holiness, the promoters of honoring God above all else, and yet it was these holy crusaders that defiled Jesus. They defied him. When Caiaphas, think about this, when Caiaphas, the high priest, asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, and Jesus says, you have said so. Caiaphas did what? He rent his robe, he tore his robe, crying that this was the worst of blasphemy, and yet it was Caiaphas that blasphemed. The high priest should have bowed down to Christ and paid him all honor, And homage, but instead of honor, they slapped him across the face. They spit on Christ. The Pharisees, who profess to love God the most, became the enemy of the Anointed One, of God's Son. And like Saul, the Pharisees sought to kill God's Anointed One. But where Saul failed, they succeeded. As Peter said in Acts 3, verses 14 and 15, they denied the holy and righteous one. They killed the author of life. Such a sin sin should make us cringe. For such is the ugliness of all sin, yes, even our own. And yet, how did Christ respond to this? Did he respond with the revenge of Lamech, where someone slaps him and he kills him? How did he act against these grievous injuries, against his own person, against his rightful office? Well, we know how Jesus' friends advised him. At one point, you may recall, his disciples said, Lord, call down fire from heaven. Just wipe them out, Jesus, you know you can. Peter grabbed a sword. We know Jesus could have called a myriad of angels to avenge himself, but he didn't. Rather, Jesus proved His righteousness by exhibiting the truest of all loves, and that is, once again, the love for enemy. Jesus showed mercy to those that showed Him none. Jesus loved you even while your sin was being piled on Him in death. Brothers and sisters, the Holy One of God, Took upon your sin. The innocent one took your punishment. The anointed one died for his enemies. He died for you. And in doing so, Christ fulfilled that oath from the Father that whoever believes in him will not be cut off, but will have everlasting life. Yes. Having placed your faith in Christ, He gives that sure promise, that sealed oath that you will not suffer that ultimate curse of being forsaken by God, but that Christ will raise you up unto a glory, a new heaven, and a new earth. Moreover, this marvelous love and mercy of Christ is what gives use strength, listen to me, and we'll close. To give you strength not to avenge yourself. Think about what it says in Romans 12. We are to leave vengeance to God. We are to imitate Christ by loving our enemies. To pray for them, even as Jesus prayed for His executioners. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Make no mistake, this is one of the heaviest burdens that we will bear. This is our cross to bear. For the foundation of our desire for vengeance is a longing, make no mistake, for justice. Wrongs have been committed against us and our fellow saints. Christians are being martyred. Turn on the news. Believers are being robbed and imprisoned for their faith in Christ. And this is not right. Surely these wrongs need to be addressed. We make no NFs and buts about that. Justice needs to happen. But God instructs us with his word, with this, be patient. He tells us to Wait. And to leave it up to him. For it is good to wait upon the Lord. In this, in this meantime, you know what the church has been called to do? Show mercy. Show mercy. You know all too well. Feed those who persecute you. Pray for them. Give them something to drink. No one said this was easy. And yet, it is so much easier when we remember that Christ first did this for us. He showed us mercy, and He saved us while we were hating Him. But what a joy. What a joy it would be if God would use us to show mercy to other sinners so that we could point them to the gospel. Joe loves others even as we have been loved. And so may the Lord use our weak and feeble love to bring more sinners to hear the good news. To hear and respond to Christ and His perfect and infinite love so that God might be glorified in us as we imitate the Lord in loving our enemies. It's a challenge. And yet... We've been called to obedience. It is a part of the law in light of the gospel. It is a requirement of us as saints to love our enemies. We are weak and feeble. We need the Lord's help, but think of the mercy and the grace of God that we have received and we celebrate every single Lord's Day.